In this episode, I connect behavioral adaptations to addiction. My name is Justin Sinceri. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist obsessed with the polylegal theory. Welcome to Stuck Not Broken. My course is available, by the way, before we launch uh, further into things, my course is available. If you are someone who is stuck down your polyvagal ladder and you want to have more access to your ventral vagal safety and social engagement system, this is for you. If you're somebody who's kind of overwhelmed with wellness information and really wants to focus in on specific learning and specific doing, and it's broken down into bite-sized pieces over 30 days, this is for you. I think you'll really enjoy it. There is a link in the description. And if you're one of the super fans, stick around after the main topic here on addiction. I've got an announcement and also another voice message from one of your fellow superfans. And lastly, please put yourself first. We're talking about behavioral adaptations and addiction. I keep it safe, but you know yourself best. So please put yourself first. Take a break if you need to. Come on back when you're ready. So last time we talked about behavioral adaptations. And real quick, this is basically just a behavior that we engage in as a way to cope with the stuck defensive energy. So rather than feeling it, and letting it do what it needs to do, it stays stuck and we engage in some sort of behavior as a way to get relief, I I would say get relief from that stuck defensive energy, which is very uncomfortable or painful. I had the image of being stopped at an intersection. Path A takes you straight, which is where you wanna go, but is uh, you're you're not familiar with it. You're not comfortable with it, it's all new. So you don't know what's ahead, but you know it's that's where you want to go. Path B feels like you're making some progress toward where you want to go, but loops right back to that intersection where you have that painful stuck defensive energy. And path B is really the behavioral adaptation. So there's no real change here. And that's kind of where we left off is there's not real change when it comes to path B. Path A is real change. Path B is really just being stuck in this behavioral adaptation, I would say loop. You, you, you keep coming right back to that stuck defensive energy. So you, you get some relief, but you come you end up going right back into that stuck defensive energy intersection. We have to have more access to the ventral vagal pathways in order to actually have real lasting change. So what does this have to do with addiction? You could probably start to put the pieces together here already that addiction is obviously a behavioral adaptation, right? My interest when it comes to addiction and substance use is not really with the addiction itself, but what leads to the addiction. So when it comes to what I'm talking about here, I'm not considering the chemical changes, the dependency, tolerance, uh, that kind of stuff that we typically consider more of like the physical addiction. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about more is because at that point, it's not just a behavioral adaptation, but it's also the body has become used to and dependent on the substance. So I'm more interested in what started the substance in the first place. How does that adaptation of getting relief through a substance, how does that adaptation become an addiction? So it's really that starting point of like, Why is this being used in the first place? Where did that come from? People use these substances or even behavior as well because I would say we can become addicted to things like gambling or sex or 
buying stuff. I mean, pretty much anything almost can be an addiction, right? People use these behaviors or these substances as a way to alleviate their suffering. And I don't blame them. The person must be in a lot of pain to turn to a substance in order to get relief from it. And addictions began probably as an effort to serve the same general purpose to alleviate suffering. I'm sure it would be different person to person on like what they're getting out of that substance. So it's before it becomes an addiction, they started using that substance like marijuana, heroin, alcohol, methamphetamine, whatever it is, that they, they used it in order to get relief from whatever pain that they're in, whatever stuck defensive energy that is too much. So they may have used substances to numb or relieve some sympathetic energy or some freeze, some stuck frozen energy. They might use to calm that same energy, maybe not numb it, but just to kind of calm it down. They might use to tap into some sympathetic energy and come out of a dorsal shutdown maybe, or at least feel like they're coming out of it. Or to feel something, you know, so they might use an upper to come up maybe, but it is different person to person. But I would say in general that these substances or even these behaviors serve to alleviate suffering. And what I mean by suffering again is the stuck defensive energy being stuck down the polyvagal ladder. I've been a therapist and working with teens and kids and families for the past uh, 12 years in many different settings like juvenile halls, schools, and also substance abuse treatment. I've I've worked at residential treatment and also outpatient in a couple different settings with teens. So I I see where things begin, I think. And not even including the familial history of substance use and what they're seeing in home. But I see where addiction starts when I work with these teens. And I hear them tell me what they get out of it. And again, I know I've said this a number of times already, but Relief is a is a big one. It's a very, very big one. Or they just say they'll say they I just feel better or I feel nothing. These are common reasons why they use substances. At first, when you ask them or you're you're curious about what's you know prompting their usage, they'll say it's fun and they like to hang out with their friends. And that's true, I'm sure. But when you delve a little further, it, it it gets to, well, I just feel relief. I just feel better. I feel less stress. I just, I feel numb, whatever it is. I get some sort of relief. And what they're getting relief from is, of course, that stuck polyvagal state of being down in a defensive state like flight, fight, shut down, or freeze. And how uncomfortable those states are, how painful those states potentially are. They just want relief from it. I think a fair question is, can we trace a specific substance to a specific polyvagal state? And I personally, I don't really want to be that definitive. I don't think that's super helpful. But it would make sense to use an upper when someone is in more of a dorsal shutdown, right? Like meth might simulate climbing up the ladder or at least taking path B. But having that upper... And getting the heart uh, beating, getting the muscles moving, and getting that energy surge is probably 
a good mimicry of the sympathetic state, I would I would think. And also it makes sense to use a downer like alcohol to relieve the sympathetic energy and simulate actually coming up the ladder because a lot of times when we drink alcohol, we become more social, right? So does that mean that it's mimicking or actually activating the ventral vagal social engagement system? I honestly don't know. It seems to, right? But alcohol also brings out anger in people, right? Or potentially could. It's different for everybody. So maybe that's uh, coming up from dorsal shutdown into the fight state, which makes sense also. I don't know. So that's why I don't, I don't want to be extremely definitive with substances and their state. Substances seem to affect different people differently. Although it could also be affecting that person's state, not just the person as a whole, but that their state in particular, or even their, you know, their biological DNA makeup. Maybe it's just on that level. I have no idea. So I think as a clinician and for my therapeers, we should really be curious about what substance use does for each individual client and what purpose it serves for them in particular. And I think there's some really, really interesting conversations that I've had with with uh, the teens that I work with about what it does for them, what kind of relief they're getting, and to also discuss if it helps, how much it helps, when it doesn't help. Like they'll say they get some kind of relief, but they also recognize, no, it doesn't solve the problem, but it gives me X amount of time where I don't have to feel whatever it is. So they say it helps a little bit. No, it doesn't solve my problems, but it gives me some relief and that's better than nothing. So does using substances actually help? You know, I, th- I think to deal with the intense energy of the moment, from, from what p- my clients tell me that it is, it's a relief, yeah. But it makes things worse in the, in the long run. And I hear things similar from uh, cutters who, who, when they cut, they get some sort of relief. They feel something. They feel lo- I've heard a client tell me they feel love when they cut. Or they feel pain, which is better than nothing. Or they feel numbness. So even when it comes to self-harm behavior, like in, like in cutting, there's going to be a range. I always hear there's a range of what someone gets out of it. And it's very much unique to that individual, of course. So in the even in, in that, even with self-harm, there is something they get out of it. Does it help in the long run? No, of course not. Absolutely not. It makes things worse, probably. So it doesn't help in that way, but it is that immediate relief. And I think substances, same thing. There's an immediate relief. And of course, that's probably going to be a part of how something becomes an, addic- an addiction. Is because it's such an immediate relief that I think on a biological level, the body learns, or maybe even brainstem learns, to go to that substance again the next time because it worked. It, it worked, that there was some sort of relief. So does using substances actually help to get unstuck? No, I don't think so. No. I know people say things about ayahuasca. I'm not talking about these ceremonial kind of things. So do they help? actually get unstuck i don't think so and they probably make life worse which probably makes that stuck state even worse but problems pile up you have legal legal consequences familial shame and rejection you have potentially job loss friend loss relationship loss 
school problems, work problems, plus the possibility of tolerance and dependence on a that more physiological level that we or that what we consider a physiological level as separate from like a mental addiction, I guess. And these substances become the first and the last and the only option. And even for something as benign as marijuana, people I talk with, my clients tell me that, I mean, they, they use every day for a reason. It's not just for fun anymore. They use every day for a reason because it, they're constantly stuck down their ladder and needing some relief. I mean, daily. And then there is some level of physical dependency, even with something like marijuana. So these things become the first, the last, and the only option, especially as tolerance and dependence increase. You know, when it comes to something that's like an easy fix, that's you're going to find that over and over and over again. When things are easy fixes, people are going to turn to them because it seems to work. Although they, everyone knows it doesn't. Would I recommend people use substances? Of course not. No, no, no. I would. I would. Didn't. I do not recommend that. As a way to deal with stuck defensive energy, no, I don't recommend this. What I would recommend is that you build your bagel break, which is the the bagel break is the influence of your social engagement system on your heart. So the stronger the bagel break, which is the stronger your social engagement system, the stronger that system is, the stronger impact it'll have on your heart which means it'll keep it at a calmer pace as we lose access to the social engagement system so as the vagal break comes off the heart rate goes up significantly and it turns into flight fight energy so i recommend you do that i recommend you build the strength of your, your vagal break which is really what building safety anchors is all about my course i think it's a really good option for it when we use substances, it's a short-term trade-off for relief instead of long-term difficulty for actual change. It's it is it's hard. It's difficult to face stuff, to deal with stuff, to talk about or think about or journal about. To feel it is difficult, right? It's, it's not easy. But to make long-term actual change, to do path A, that is what's necessary. And when you do something like a substance, it's a short-term trade-off for relief. And I would say same thing, you know, with, I mentioned behaviors like gambling. Even benign stuff like TV, that's watching or flipping through your phone. It's a short-term trade-off. And now as long as we're flipping through our phone and we don't have to deal with our own internal stuff, we're getting that trade-off. But nothing works this way. Nothing, when it comes to actual change, finding actual connection and happiness or joy in life, it, it doesn't work. That's not the way it works. We don't, that's not going to come from short-term relief, short-term that trade-off. And really anything worth having in life, I don't think works this way. All greatness, all genuine like happiness, I think, or success, it comes from hard work. You have to put the work in. And that in, this includes changing yourself. You have to put the work in. Businesses grow from the work, not from shortcuts. Athletes improve from the work they put in, not from shortcuts. Even steroid users have put in a lifetime of work to get to a certain level, right? They didn't just decide to become an athlete 
and then start using steroids to get to the pros, like they've already put in a ton of work and they try to, you know, cheat to get to the next step. But that's that's cheating to reach a goal, which is different than using a substance to get relief from it's different, right? But you get the idea. Change does not come from avoiding or seeking temporary relief. It comes from the work. And I, I think people are turned off by that word or the phrase the work. But it is like it's it's a how about let's call it practice. How about we call it, you know, dedicated practice, something like that. Maybe that's more palatable. Is but you have to put in the practice, you have to put in the work. You tap into your, that ventral vagal safety system more and more and more. You dip into the pain little by little, but at increased depths more and more. And you go deeper into the pain, or at least in the feelings of it, into the somatic feelings of it, into the polyvagal ladder of it. You, you go deeper into the pain as you increase the strength of your vagal break, as you increase the strength of your social engagement system. So that's why when it comes to making real change, it's not just about focusing on the painful stuff. It's about increasing the positive stuff too, really kind of um, first, I think, but also alongside the painful stuff. But we have to have the strength of that safety, the ventral vagal safety system. We have to have that built up enough to be able to tolerate the more uncomfortable stuff. Otherwise, I don't, change is not going to happen. And we're going to keep looking for those short-term reliefs, such as substances, such as gambling behavior or other, you know, uh, addictive, potentially addictive behaviors. But also such as numbing our minds with TV and video games and phone and whatever else. No, I don't recommend substances. I recommend people build the strength of their bagel breaks. I have one announcement, which is that I have a new quarterly mini ebook that comes out. Every quarter, you guessed it. I have that coming out. It's called Stuck Not Broken Quarterly. It's something I send to my email list and my patrons. So become a $5 patron or just sign up for my email list on the website. And you'll get in, in the SMB quarterly, I'll, I put in um, like a favorite blog article or two, just repackaged into an ebook. So you can read it. It's, it's really nice because in an ebook format, you can change the text size and text, you know, the font. And it's, it's pretty cool. It's very practical. But I also want to, I'll write some, at least one new thing each quarterly uh, issue. I'll have a new article in there as well. So sign up for that or become a patron and you'll get access to it. I really like to spread the positivity. So when love is thrown my way, I like to share it with everyone here. I don't know, just as a way to spread more positivity. And so that you as a super fan who listens this deep into the episode that you hear from other super fans who are getting something out of the podcast. So here is a message from one of your fellow super fans from Ireland. Um, Hi, Justin. I'm from Ireland. Um, And I recently just discovered your podcast. I'm currently going through, um, well, I've been in therapy for about a year and a half. Um, just to do with relational trauma, um, CPTSD and things like that. 
And I just listened to um, your episode on play and stillness and I just got really emotional because I felt so sad for myself in school who was like the rebel because I felt I wasn't good enough at home. So I started acting it out in school and it was constantly reiterated to me that everything I was doing wasn't good enough. So I just want to say thanks for the work that you're doing. Um, it's really making a difference and I think everybody should hear more about it. Take care. You are very, very welcome. Thank you for sending me the, the voice message. It means a lot to me. I think those first nine episodes have a really big impact on people. That's where I really go into the fundamentals of the polyvagal theory in those first nine. And then after that, um, myself, well, Mercedes and myself would um, apply that knowledge to different areas of life. Like we had episodes on school and on work, stuff like that. But those first nine, people like them a lot and it has a big impact. If you haven't heard of those first nine, definitely go back, way back to the beginning, listen to those. Something I might want to return to and add to, because I feel like I've fleshed out my knowledge of, of this stuff even more since then. So I might return to those and actually... What I want to do is create like a polyvagal masterclass kind of thing. That might be my next that might be my next uh, course that I sell as a polyvagal masterclass and just dump all of my polyvagal knowledge into one class. <laughs> but thank you again for Ireland. Thank you for that uh, that message. I'm I'm happy this podcast has meant something to you. And dear listener, thank you so much for listening. I hope you've learned something new from this episode that you can apply to your own life and maybe even help you climb your own polyvagal ladder. Bye.